0: It's a blessing to be up here uh, with you guys to bring God's holy word, the living, active, breathing word of God. Uh, We're continuing our our Acts series titled uh, The Acts of the Risen Christ, and having completed uh, the first four chapters, uh, we're now starting a new chapter today. Uh, Before we begin, I'd like to give a big picture flyover for our context. Um, The book of Acts basically just picks up immediately uh, where the gospel of Luke leaves off. It's been said that the two books really go together uh, as a two-volume, kind of a unified two-volume work. Uh, Luke's particular aim with these two volumes as a historian has been to provide an orderly and accurate account of the events that took place both in the life and death of Jesus and then his continued work after his resurrection. Uh, and This is why I just love the title so much, Acts of the Risen Christ, because that's really what we get to read about. Uh, the ongoing work of the crucified and raised, ascended Lord in Christ by His poured out Holy Spirit through His apostles and growing church of disciples who are continuing His mission from the Father to seek and to save that which was lost. This mission to redeem and gather His new covenant worshipers, And witnesses made up of Jews and Gentiles united together in Christ as God's new creation community. This new covenant temple of believers, made up of living stones, bound together, blessed with God's special presence. All this, of course, fulfilling what God the Father promised the Son in Psalm 2. I will give you the nations. Thus the Lamb must receive the fruit of His sufferings. And someday... Count on it. All the elect, as we were reminded this morning, will be gathered in him. The wicked judged and cast out from God's presence, and Christ's glory brought in and put on full display as the blessed portion of his people in the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what you call the true glory story. This, of course, is a beautiful picture for us to keep in mind and fix our hearts on as we go through Acts. Also, um, In the book of Acts, we get to read and hear uh, God's inspired word tell this story uh, of his amazing movement through history as truly his story. I know we've heard that before. History is his story. And many of us were taught history. Without Christ at the center, we were sadly disserviced and Christ was dishonored. But as we come to Christ, we learn history centers in and through and upon him. All things being created by Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. Colossians 1. So to help with this bigger picture, in Luke uh, chapter 24, 45 through 49, we read about how the resurrected Jesus from the dead, Christ has risen from the dead, before his ascension into heaven and outpouring of the Spirit, opened the minds of his disciples to understand the Scriptures and reminds them of what is written. And he has to remind us many times as well that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. This is Christ's words to his disciples uh, and his apostles, that the apostles would be his witnesses of such things. But they had to wait for something very important. Jesus told them, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with this power from on high. This is what Acts is all about. The Lord faithfully working... The Lord, uh, enabling His church on earth, empowering by the poured-out Holy Spirit from heaven, corresponding with Christ's present heavenly rule and reign. Well, in our series so far, we've heard about that glorious day, that outpouring that occurred, the descent of the Spirit at Pentecost upon the disciples after faithfully waiting, uh, as instructed by the Lord Jesus, for the promise of the Father. And we saw Peter, uh, freshly clothed with this power from on high, now boldly witnessing and preaching Jesus as the Christ from the Old uh, Testament scriptures. This Peter who denied Jesus before uh, a little girl testifies now to many in the face of opposition, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, afterwards resulting in 3,000 souls being baptized and added to their number. Then there is the beautiful fruit that followed of the believers being devoted to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, breaking of bread and the prayers. Great awe and fear falling upon every soul while signs and wonders were taking place for the apostles. All who believed were described as being together, having all things in common, selling possessions and belongings and distributing among themselves where there was need. Day by day united at the temple and from from house to house, eating together with generous hearts, praising God having favor with all the people, and the Lord adding to the number day by day, continually, all. And all these things are very wonderful and beautiful things. Then, of course, the story of the lame man healed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This mighty, miraculous act creates more praise and continued witnessing from the Old Testament scriptures of Christ, followed by persecution from the Jewish leaders. After further testifying to the truth of Jesus and pledging allegiance publicly uh, to obey King Jesus above all, The apostles are released and pray for for further boldness to continue this holy work being done. And finally, last week, we looked at the wonderful unity that was had in God's new creation community and generosity that was being experienced. That the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and shared all things in common while needs were continually and cheerfully being met. So that catches us up to where we are today. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 5 and we'll be in verse... Uh, Verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of the Lord. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And they carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church, and upon all who heard of these things. Let us pray. Our holy and gracious God, truly, Lord, you are judge of all the earth. You are majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders creator of all things, heaven and earth. Lord, you are to be feared. You are to be worshipped. You are to be obeyed. You are owed everything. And God, we see in ourselves, Lord, that owing you everything, we have only sinned and abused your name, that we have fallen greatly short of the glory of God, and we've all sinned. But thank you that you have not left us without hope. You have sent your son, Jesus, to live and die in our place, now, He Himself is our righteousness and our salvation. And Lord, we read of great things here in Your Word, things that ought to cause us to, to pause, self examine, to tremble, and to be drawn closer to You. And I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You f- that it is food to our souls, that we can be strengthened, our faith can be built up. And may it do so now, Lord. May it strengthen the hearts of your people, may it comfort, and yet also give us a sober warning of danger. God, we trust that you do, uh, will do good through this message, and it will be to your glory, by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> well, have you ever had the thought, wow, just when things seem to be going good, suddenly something bad happens? to mess it all up. I know we've all felt that way before on different occasions and seasons, whether it was a restored relationship that went in a bad direction again, or a repaired vehicle that suddenly gets worse uh, than it was before the repair, maybe health improvements that were quickly lost, whatever the case may be, and there are many, it's certainly an unpleasant reality of the fallen human experience. When challenges are faced and solutions are sought, so often we are met with great difficulties. And we see this pattern, of course, very much throughout Scripture, uh, starting right at the beginning. The glorious God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in them in the span of six days. Everything is pronounced good as God blesses it and rests on the seventh day, blessing the Sabbath. And the Lord puts Adam in place essentially as a priest judge to work and to keep God's holy temple-like garden, guarding it from anything unclean that would threaten. With his beloved helpmate by his side, Eve, everything seems to be going just right at this point. But then you know the story. The crafty serpent suddenly enters the garden sanctuary and deceives Eve, his first target, and then through Eve brings down Adam as well, thus plunging all of humanity into a cursed state of sin and ruin. After God pronounces judgment, he then promises something glorious. In Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, giving the promise of a seed, of the woman who would someday crush the head of the serpent. God then blesses the couple with offspring. With this comes right sacrifices, presented by Abel, described as a man of faith. But it doesn't take long before Cain threatens the good going on. He brings an unacceptable offering and then later kills his brother from envy. Judgment again follows as he is marked off as a covenant breaker. Followed by this is the birth of another son in the righteous line of faith. And the grace of God continues. And so we have this pattern all throughout the Bible. At the Exodus, God grants a glorious deliverance to Israel from Egypt's slavery. And he is providing abundantly for them at every turn. But when Moses is up on the mountain to receive God's glorious law for Israel, the people start worshiping the golden calf. Their hearts turn away from the living God. Judgment follows. Renewal occurs. And you get the picture. Time would fail to follow uh, this theme all throughout Scripture. Needless to say, sin... Is a destructive force at work and merits God's judgment. But God is gracious and faithful to continue his work of grace to destroy it and deliver his people through the promised work of Christ. Similar to this pattern, our story today in Acts is also about sin and deceit as a horrible act done to God in his new covenant community. It is one that reminds us that deceit is something that God takes very seriously. And will not leave undealt with, either through granting repentance from it to life or giving judgment. Yet God will still continue his work as he has promised, for he is faithful and cannot deny himself. When was the last time we considered how God looks at deceit in the human heart? What is God's attitude and response towards such things, and what should our attitude be? Well, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 tells us how God feels about these things. He says there are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. That was Proverbs six sixteen through 19. Today, let us be reminded then of the serious nature of sinning against God, the living and true God, who himself hates all sin, lies, and deceit who sees right through it to the innermost thoughts and intentions of the hearts and will judge us accordingly. The God of the Bible is the God of truth. He is the judge of all. And these divine perfections are to be feared to be worshipped. Yet we should at the same time be reminded that these things ought to run us all the more urgently to the Savior for refuge in the one that bled and died for terrible sinners so that we do not shrink back in faithless fear from his throne of grace in light of these heavy matters but press on all the more boldly To our loving Father and faithful high priest. I've titled this sermon simply, Judgment in the Church. And my proposition for the message is this, that we must fear God and remain watchful against temptation. In this series, we've recently seen an attack on the church from without. But in this, we have the first instance of an attack on the church from within. I've got three main headings uh, from our text today. The, first, the dynamics of, of not resisting temptation. Second, the tragic ending of unrepentant sin. And third, the need for the healthy uh, fear of the Lord. The dynamics of not resisting temptation, the tragic ending of unrepentant sin, and the need for healthy fear of the Lord. So let's now take a closer look at our portion of Scripture. Uh, to get the right sense of things in our story today, remember, again, that good things are happening uh, in the previous chapters of Acts. So far, there's really uh, poured out blessings, but and there's some attacks starting to rise up against the church from without, yet within, it, uh, Acts 4.33 says, Great grace was upon them all. It, w- it is said that not, not a needy person was among them for many land and homeowners were selling all and bringing their proceeds to the apostles' feet to be distributed where needed. Christ's kingdom is advancing and expanding as the blessed new creation community is growing in unity and generosity. All seem to be going very well as far as the health of God's people at this very special time of redemptive history. But then this blessed picture is interrupted and marred with this sad story of two sinful individuals. Let's read again, verse 1 and 2. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias is with his wife Sapphira, we read. This is a husband and a a wife united together in marriage, of one accord in selling this property and Ananias' plan for keeping back some of the proceeds, then presenting only a part of it at the apostles' feet. Now, so far, we just have uh, what's above the surface, just simply a record of the facts of what happened outwardly. They sold the property. They kept back some of the proceeds together. He presented part of it to the apostles. At this point, it isn't totally clear what's really going on. But let's keep reading. Verse 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Now here we have what's below the surface. The secret hidden reality. Is exposed by the Holy Spirit to Peter and then brought into the light and called out with these sobering and searching words. There's a hidden ruling principle of sin being detected in this man's heart, Ananias, and charges are being made by the apostle. This man has apparently proceeded sinfully with these actions. And so here we'll look at the dynamic of not resisting temptation. As we examine this, let's try to discern this particular sin to better understand something of the battle between righteousness and unrighteousness, that we ourselves can be all the more prepared against such things. What is the sin Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of? Verse two says he kept back some of the proceeds. On the surface, again, this doesn't tell us very much about the sinfulness behind their actions. But the notes for this verse found in the ESV Study Bible are helpful in pointing out that the word in Greek for kept back means to put aside for oneself, to keep back in a secret and dishonest way. It is an uncommon Greek word used also in the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in the story of Achan, found in Joshua chapter 7, who received a sentence of death for holding back some of the spoils from Jericho that were supposed to be dedicated to God. What's interesting about that story is it also is at a particular time when many good things were happening for Israel. If you're familiar with that story, they had just victoriously destroyed Jericho and were marching onward in celebration when God's anger was suddenly kindled and started giving Israel over to their enemy. When Joshua sought the Lord on the matter, it was revealed that someone in the camp had sinned by stealing and lying. Joshua 7, through 12 soberly records what God said to Joshua in response about this sinful deed. He said, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed by covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied about them. uh, put them, Put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their back before their enemies, because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more, unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. This story follows the same pattern pointed out earlier. Judgment on Achan and his family. Then renewal towards the mission is experienced as God's grace stays on the move. Now thinking back about what's going on here in Acts, let's see how this might apply. Some commentators say that Ananias and Sapphira had sold the property with the intention to give all to the church. But then after committing to do so before the Lord, they didn't follow through. And in in that is this idea of sinfully keeping back what was to be fully devoted to the Lord. The Bible certainly has much to say about following through with one's oaths and vows, uh, that it is better not to vow than to vow and then break the commitment. But whether or not that's true, we can't really know for certain or what all the intentions were in selling the property. It just says they kept back some of the proceeds. Other commentators say that this aspect of things, in and of itself, wasn't necessarily sinful. In verse 4, Peter says that even after the property was sold, the money was still at at his disposal, meaning it was his to do what he wanted to do with it. Nobody was forcing any of these sales upon anyone. It was just a very special time of spirit-filled saints cheerfully giving all to the cause of Christ and providing for the needy among them. But when this is studied out in context, the nature of the sin becomes more clear. The offense primarily is this by Ananias presenting the proceeds to the apostles as though it were the whole, when in fact it was only part. His sin was the lie of pretending to be doing more than he actually did. Matthew Henry says about this couple that they were ambitious of being thought eminent disciples when really they were not true disciples. They were covetous of the wealth of the world and distrustful of God and his providence. They thought they might serve both God and mammon, And this, of course, proved to be fatal. For further aggravation of the offense, we also see, again, that this was a preconceived plan between the two, husband and wife, because later, as we read, uh, when Sapphira shows up, she's asked about the amount of the property that was sold, and she apparently lies about that amount, in unity with her husband in the deceit. They were clearly in on this sin together something that had been thought through well ahead in advance. The hidden reality of their true colors was one of sin enslavement. They are sadly a couple that did not resist temptation and were filled with Satan, drawn toward greed in the midst of a community of believers filled with the Spirit, drawn towards generosity. So you have kind of quite a contrast there. Uh, Satan filling towards greed on, with this couple, with the backdrop of the Spirit filling the cup, co- the community towards generosity. Matthew Henry again commenting on that says, It is sad to see those relations who should quicken one another to that which is good, harden one another to that which is evil. Their plan was one of trickery and hypocrisy. It's not as though God was not gracious, and, and I want us all to hear this. God it's not that God was not being gracious and merciful to sinners as the rest, but rather they're being hardened in their pretending. There's a quote here by uh, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom. Uh, God can save the sinner you are, not the saint you pretend to be. And that's helpful to me. God can save the sinner you are, but not the saint you pretend to be. Such sin was directly against God. Ultimately, they lied, not to man, as our text says, but to God, the Holy Spirit. Important to note here as well that this is a mighty proof text to refute any who would deny the deity of the Holy Spirit or his personhood, as you can't lie to a mere force. Some of us have been talking with Jehovah's Witnesses lately, a false cult, and they deny God in this way. Their lying in our story is a sin committed against the divine third person of the Holy Trinity. Don't let anyone deceive you about what or who the Holy Spirit is. He is God, and He is a person. We as Christians ought to know how to defend this precious orthodox doctrine of the triunity of our God. But what other application should we draw out from these things? One important application would be that we must discern what threatens Christ's new creation community and kingdom advancement, and of course act accordingly by remaining on our guard against such things. Hypocrisy, greed, love for money, desire for the high opinions of others, deficient views of God's holiness, and secret eye. All such things need to be discerned and guarded against in our own hearts and in the hearts of all God's community. Jesus had hard rebukes for the Pharisees, religious hypocrites, pretenders, and those who lived for the praises of man instead of for God's glory. He warned against those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous while treating others with contempt. As far as money and one's possessions, we know that the Bible has much to say about that. The love for money is the root of all sorts of evil. Jesus also said plainly, you cannot serve both God and money. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. He says elsewhere, to take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And also that God loves a cheerful giver. So as we're learning about what God hates, we also want to learn what God loves. He loves a cheerful giver. We must indeed be watchful of sin. God told Cain from the beginning in Genesis that sin is crouching at your door and its desires for you. And that is not a pleasant for you. That is a word meaning to master unto destruction. Sin is a deadly thing. It's out to master and kill from within our own hearts. We must see it for what it is. High treason against the living and holy God and must be found out to be hated and forsaken. Psalm 36.2. What we think are small sins and con- or consider large sins. It doesn't matter. All sin is an offense to the uncompromising, inflexible holiness of God and requires deliverance by grace through Christ or be met with judgment. John Owen famously said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There are no breaks in this battle, no room for slackness with a complacent attitude towards sin. I can assure you that sin is not on any breaks. In fact, when the enemy is least perceived, when things are going well, there is the most vulnerability. The Bible says, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Not only should we be watchful against sin, but remember the subtlety of our enemy, Satan. Thomas Brooks, in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, says, Christ, the scripture, your own hearts, and Satan's devices are the four prime things that should be first and most studied and searched. If any cast off the study of these, they cannot be safe here nor happy thereafter. These are true and wise words. We ought to consider the enemies of our souls. The Bible describes Satan as a liar, deceiver, out to kill, steal, and destroy. He roams around seeking someone to devour. The road to hell is wide and easy, Jesus warns. And we have a very fierce enemy, Satan, from without, as well as an evil world full of trinkets and charms and the indwelling corruption of the flesh as well, uh, the Christian has, which sadly is all too willing to open that door and let in the influences and suggestions of evil. While we have these many dangers to our progress, let us remember to praise God that those who have been born again by the Spirit through saving faith in Christ will persevere to the end against all attacks. This perseverance involves not only sure promises, though, to trust fully upon Christ, but also uses the means of strong warnings to heed. Ephesians 6 exhorts us to the spiritual battle with the armor of God. And we need to daily gear up and be prepared together to battle the serpent in the victory of the blood of Christ. Jesus has crushed Satan's head. Be reminded of that. We have only to cling close to our victor and king by faith. Christ Jesus is on the throne. We must be warned and press on in total trust and Renewed obedience from gratitude as we seek to fight the temptation of the flesh. God is able, and Christ is all-sufficient. His spirit won't fail us. His blood won't fail us. We be given all things that pertain to godliness in Jesus. All promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. He is worthy of all our due diligence. This uh, This requires God to be on our side against our sin. We need Him. When I talk to my kids and I discipline them for their sin, I say, hey, I'm on your side against your sin. And so that's how the Father treats us. Through Christ, I'm on your side. I'm for you. I'm with you against your sin. And we have to see that sin is our biggest problem. I see all you guys, and you see me. And when we talk to people, we look at people, and we make observations but what often is lacking is our own awareness of who we are and what we're doing. But we need to realize that we are often blinded to our own sin. And that makes us very vulnerable. So let's uh, be aware of that. But, and without this grace-dependent warring approach towards sin and, and this embrace of gospel grace to the fight, it's all too easy to become overly comfortable and complacent through the neglect of God's means of grace we then weaken and become more vulnerable to attacks. The downward progression, if continued, leads to increasing compromise and more corruption breaking out as we are learning uh, in Wednesday's evening study lately in Psalm 1 about the blessed man who guards himself, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers nor stand in the way of sinners. He, He protects himself from that downward pull of the wicked. And these are all healthy warnings that are good for us all. Those outside of Christ must be warned to flee to Christ for safety or perish. The believer in Christ battling sin, too, must be warned to flee from sin to Christ for refuge. Faith and repentance is something we grow in. And it is the ongoing movement of the Christian life, not something you do just one time and move on from. So we, we ought to encourage each other to, to stay faithful, and repentant. Now, Unheeded warnings and graceless, deceitful hearts will have devastating consequences that follow. So look with me again in our scripture. Uh, we'll continue in verse 5 and 6, which says, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Peter called out this man's sin, And those words spoken to him were the last words Ananias heard before dying, taking his dying breath. God judged him right then and right there and took his life on the spot. We have here a picture then of the sobering reality of sin and judgment. Consider now with me uh, our second heading, the tragic ending of unrepentant sin. Here we are reminded uh, what's at stake, the war going on for souls. In our story today, we have a particular case with a particular outcome. It was during a very crucial time in history of the church's foundation laying era and God handled it accordingly as he seemed fit. Just as mighty miracles and signs and wonders were happening through Peter and the apostles, so we have quite a uh, serious display of judgment. This was not Peter, though, putting anyone to death, just as it wasn't them doing the miracles, but Christ in them. This was God's presence to judge taking action in protection of his church's holiness. No longer tied to a temporal, physical temple, God's presence is in Christ and shared with his church. Whereas people were filled with the glorious spirit from heaven and partaking in the eschatological or end times, fulfillment of promise as foretold by the prophets, God's redemptive presence was being manifested and encountered in a full and robust way within the community. And just as God's presence can be there to bless and give life so his presence also can be present, to judge and even on certain occasions put to death. The deed of Ananias and Sapphira was a terrible sin at a glorious time, and God did what he deemed best. This unique, immediate judgment is one of several similar examples in the Bible, such as Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offering unauthorized fire, Uzzah, touching the ark, the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, all met with immediate death. We shouldn't conclude, though, that God will always handle secret sins with such immediacy. God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. His ways are beyond finding out. None can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? These things serve to remind us of what a holy God can do. But let us uh, read on in our story and look at what happens with Sapphira, starting in verse 7, and we'll read through 10. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and all upon, and upon all who heard of these things. This agreement together to test the Lord was clung to by her, even though three hours had passed by. She was met with the same fate, immediate judgment, by death. This is indeed a tragic ending, and we are reminded of what is at stake in this battle. Sin plays for keeps. The wages of sin is death. That is both temporal and eternal death. Either by God's grace, one will be saved from their sin, or they will be hardened and judged in their sin. And anybody who knows their Bible knows that it is not shy about God's righteous judgment for such sinners. Though God does not delight, let me be clear on this, that uh, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, and rather is that they should turn from their wicked ways and live, Ezekiel 18.23, though he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, and forgiveness, though he delight in mercy, yet he will by no means clear the guilty. Psalm seven, eleven through sixteen says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil, and is pregnant with mischief, and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. We have in our story today a glimpse into that final judgment day, for it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment, when all mankind will be judged through the man, Christ Jesus, secrets will be revealed, and all will appear before the God who sees and judges our hidden motives. God is after total commitment of the heart, and so is sin and Satan. God will have all of our beings undivided in devotion to Him. He does not want us by the halves or to share us with idols. He does not look upon the outward appearance of a man, but examines the heart and weighs the spirit. He knows those who are truly His and those who are not. Those all in and those who are not. Those who remain at war with sin by indwelling grace and those who are still enslaved to sin. Behold, Psalm 51, six says about God, you delight in the inward being. Truth, in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. How desperately, then, sinners need Christ and His gospel to save them from their sins. If sin is not dealt with by grace, the tragic ending will be the same as Ananias and Sapphira in the final analysis death and judgment. Christ has commanded us to count the cost, deny ourselves, take up our cross to follow Him. He has promised to save us from our sins fully and finally, by grace alone, through faith alone. To all who look to him. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. Jesus, it says of him in Matthew 121, She will bear a son, about Mary. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. They're his people, they're our sins, he'll save us from them. And that's a wonderful thought. Jesus is indeed a sufficient savior for all who by faith come to him for salvation those who are in Christ, we can be encouraged that God gives more grace and grants full salvation, and he will preserve his elect to the end by that same immutable grace. What is impossible with man is possible with God, so we can fully trust him and rest all our faith and hope in and upon the sufficiency of grace in the perfect person and objective work of the Lord Jesus and him crucified. Let us be reminded that his desire for us is to be inwardly what we profess outwardly before others. That can be a challenge. Honoring the Father who sees in secret. Our Father is described as Him who is in secret and sees what's in secret. And that should be a sobering thought for us. For clarity's sake, let me say that this inward emphasis is not the same as looking to oneself. For all you will find there is the very sin you need saved from. Rather, we look upward and outward to the Savior fully saves all sinners who come to him by faith, trusting alone in his blood. It's his sufficiency that is the solution. Ours is the problem. His is the solution. We need saved from ourselves, brothers and sisters. We have a battle to wage within our own hearts. Joel Beake helpfully uh, helps us in understanding this in his family worship guide about this uh, story. He says, Satan wages war at the level of our hearts, seeking To fill the thoughts and affections of people with greed, deceit, and hypocrisy. Yet sinners cannot excuse themselves by saying that the devil made them do it. Ananias and Sapphira conceived this thing in their hearts, verse 4. As a result, God rightly judged them for putting on a false show of righteousness. He then asks, how should this event teach us to fear the Lord? We'll now seek to answer that question further as we consider our third and final point. We have the need of a healthy fear of the Lord. The Bible has nothing but good things to say about having the fear of the Lord. The right kind of fear. What was the result all this had on the people? Again, verse 5 says that great fear fell upon all who, uh, on all who heard of it. And then the same about Ananias in verse 11. Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard about these things. Great fear on the whole church. This was a very good thing, a healthy thing thing, one of reverence and respect and love for the holy God in their midst. The ESV notes about this fear that it was the rightful response to a manifestation of God's presence, which involves both reverent awe and a healthy fear of God's displeasure and discipline. In Psalm 90, which is an amazing song of Moses, uh, he asks, who considers, he asks God, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So these things are not meant to run us away from the Lord, but to help us to gain a heart of wisdom. For the Christian trusting in Christ, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, wrath was spent on Jesus on the cross. As we consider what we deserve in our sins, we should then appreciate the significance of Christ becoming our sin-atoning wrath-bearing sacrifice that perfectly satisfied all of God's divine judgments against us for our sins at the cross. The fruit of such things is the fear of the Lord. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The fear of the Lord is to be desired. Isaiah 33.6 says the fear of the Lord is actually Zion's treasure. Treasure. God said to delight in those who fear him. Again, not slavish fear and dread of a merciless tyrant, but a worshipful, worshipful, faithful realization of the weightiness of God's glory, a heightened awareness of the gravity of sin's offense to God's holiness and the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ offered to all who repent and the sufficiency of His atoning death for their salvation. It is a serious awe, reverence, respect, acknowledgement, appreciation, and adoration of God, of His being God and doing what God does, a radical allegiance to His kingdom and right worship. This right fear of God should... Uh, lead us to more trust, joy, diligence, and yes, warring against sin, Satan, and the world with sober watchfulness. This fear supports and helps us in the fight by giving us a heart full of God and His gracious supply of the Spirit. Without Him, we can do nothing. Well, as we bring this to a close today, we have encountered in the Word something of a sober warning as well as an encouragement towards action. These truths should change us. We've looked at the dynamics of not resisting temptation. Second, the tragic ending of unrepentant sin. And third, the need for healthy fear of the Lord. May the Lord help us to fear him properly and remain the more watchful over our hearts and each other's hearts against secret temptation to sin when good things are happening. May he deliver us from all attacks on the church from without as well as from within. As the second Adam, Jesus Christ, did what Adam, the first Adam failed to do, He is our chief priest-judge over his kingdom, so let us, in like fashion, be so to our own hearts, homes, this church, as we seek to maintain the purity of worship and the fervency of witnessing to others the soul-saving gospel of Christ and him crucified. Let us end with uh, this final word from the close of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let us pray.